Well, good morning. Welcome to Willingdon on this beautiful uh, long weekend. I hope you're having some time of uh, reflection on, and refreshment as we enjoy this amazing weather. Uh, continuing in our series in Exodus, the God, God Revealed. And this morning is Exodus uh, chapter 18. If you're using your pew Bibles, it's page 59. Uh, and uh, Exodus is the second book in the Bible, and we're in the 18th chapter. This morning's message is entitled, Your Story, God's Story. And we're going to look at how the two are intertwined through uh, the story in Exodus 18. Uh, I love watching uh, animated movies because uh, it seems there's this uh, creativity that happens in the storytelling in so many animated movies. And they're aimed at children, but not really, right? There's always two plots that are running. One is the plot that children understand, the very uh, straightforward story that's being told. And then the writers typically also write another plot sort of for parents. And the humor is much more subtle, uh, cultural innuendo, uh, references to pop culture or movies that a child would never understand. Right? They're always running on two levels. Uh, I think very much scripture can run on two levels. You have the storyline of the story you're reading, and then you have the grand story that's running throughout the Bible of God's work in history. And this morning's story in Exodus 18 is one of those stories. The human story, the direct story that we read is Moses uh, and the story of him and his father-in-law who comes to visit, his father-in-law Jethro. But it's placed in the context of God's unfolding story in history that is significant for us today as it is for them back when this story was written. The other piece that I think is so significant in this story is you have this, this uh, character of Jethro, a minor character in Scripture. Uh, he's not mentioned very often. Uh, and yet God uses this, I'd say, unlikely and uh, least expected or unexpected person to impact the people of Israel and actually speak into our lives in profound ways if our eyes and hearts and minds are open to what God wants to say. Exodus 18 breaks into the story of Israel coming out of Egypt and walking then uh, into the desert towards the promised land prior to the, the law being given, which is a significant event. And suddenly in there, you get this family reunion. And at first you look at it and you go, why is this here? This doesn't really make sense. But it's unique enough that you know, every, all the commentators you pick up, they go, God is up to something here. We need to pay attention to this as to what God is doing. As Jethro comes to visit Moses, and he reorients Moses and his elders' understanding, I think, of faith in a profound way and of leadership. And in the midst of that, I think what God shows us is that as Jethro gives expression to his understanding of who God is, as Jethro discovers who he is, it points to this reality, that we find our story in God's story. We find our story in God's story. So often we try to add God to our lives. We try and say, God, come and fix this or come and change this. But we actually find our story in what God is doing in the world, not the other way around. We find our story in God's story. So the story of Jethro and Moses begins at the beginning of Exodus. And, of course, Moses ran away from Egypt because his life was being threatened. 
because he had killed uh, the, uh, the Egyptian uh, slave ruler there as they were beating on uh, one of the Hebrews. And so as he f- was found out, Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses. Moses runs away, goes to Midian. And at Midian, he comes to a well. At that well, he meets Zipporah and her, and, uh, her sister, sisters, with, who have sheep. And there's other sheep herders there. And Moses protects Zipporah. Uh, and gets them water, and then Zipporah says, hey, come back to our place with us, meets Jethro, her father, ultimately marries Zipporah, and he spends 40 years there until the incident with the burning bush where, God, where Moses meets God, and God reveals himself to Moses. And of course, it's that famous scene where Moses says, God, who shall I say sent me to the people of Israel? And God says, tell them I am sent you, Yahweh the one true sovereign God. And then, of course, Moses leaves at that point. And while Moses goes to Egypt, uh, Zipporah goes with him for some of that journey, but he ends up sending Zipporah and his boys back to stay with Jethro. Most commentators would say he did that because the Egyptians and the Midianites did not get along. So for Zipporah, a Midianite, to come to Egypt would have been a very difficult and uncomfortable situation for her. So she stays with her father, and Moses' two boys are there uh, as well. And now Jethro has heard the stories, presumably through travelers passing through, about what God has done through the people of Israel, uh, the ten plagues, they're, they're moving out of Israel through the Red Sea or out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. God's provision with, with food through the provision of meat and bread. God's protection uh, over the, uh, the battles they had. God's provision of water. And now Jethro wants to get a firsthand account uh, from Moses as to what was happening there. So we pick up the story in verse 1 of Exodus 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken uh, Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. So you have this, the scene set out for you. And Jethro comes, and when the messenger says, hey, Jethro's coming with your wife and kids, Moses goes out to meet them, and there's this formal greeting. It says, Moses bowed down before him and kissed him. And I thought, you know, there's a biblical mandate for how we're supposed to greet each other, so perhaps we should do that this morning. Yeah, that nervous laugh, that's what every service did. (laughs) Then I thought, maybe that'd be the last sermon I preach at Willingdon if I make you do that. So they have this greeting there. There's a formality to it, but there's also a sense then about the intimate relationship. He said, they asked each other of their welfare, and then they went into the tent. You don't get any sense that this is an awkward family reunion. In fact, you get the opposite sense. Moses and Jethro have a good relationship. Moses spent 40 years there, and they were in relationship. They wanted to hear about each other. It says they inquired of each other's welfare. 
Tell me how you're doing. Tell me what's going on in your life. How have you been since the last time I saw you? And then he meets, of course, his wife and his boys again, and there's that reunion. And then we have some insight further into that relationship. Verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. I think there's something in here for us to learn. Jethro goes to meet Moses because he's heard about what God had been doing. He wants that first-hand account. And there's an air of authenticity about this relationship. Why would I say that? Because it would have been easy enough for Moses to say, hey, here are the high points of the story. There were these 10 plagues. It was amazing. And then we were freed from uh, Egypt. And then we got to the Red Sea. The Red Sea was parted. The Egyptian army was defeated. And then we got into the desert. And then God provided for us amazing ways, meat and bread and water. And then we defeated the Amalekites. It was an amazing thing. He could have told that story. But the text tells us that Moses also said, all the hardship that had come upon them. And I think part of the hardship story is, boy, here's when we doubted. Here's when we second-guessed. Here's when the people grumbled. Here's when I got to Egypt. They said, who are you to lead us out of Egypt? Like, who do you think you are? You're the guy who ran away all those years ago. I remember you. What qualifies you to do this? What authority do you have? And then, of course, we know about the grumbling in the desert. And just a couple of days ago, these very same people were saying to Mo, threatening Moses with murder. They wanted to kill him because they didn't have water. Moses tells the whole story to his father-in-law about everything that had happened. Here's a sidebar for us, friends. Here's what I notice in Christian community all over North America. What do we do when we meet each other? How's it going? Great. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. I'm thinking, as a pastor, there's times I've sat in lobbies or different places I've been, and I go, wait a minute, I talked to you recently, and I talked to you, and I know you're not fine. But you just told each other you're fine. Somebody's not telling the truth here. We don't often go into the authentic places in our relationships. I don't know all the reasons behind it, but I know it's culture in North America, perhaps other places in the world. We put our best foot forward. But when we do that, here's the problem with that. We miss out on the encouragement of each other, the support of each other, the care of each other, and doing that mutually for each other. Our relationships stay thin. They stay shallow. That's what happens. And actually, the rest of this story shows us, I think, what happens when your relationships have depth to them, when you can say good things are happening and bad things are happening. And for most of us, they're happening simultaneously. For most of us, there are challenging things happen the same day that good things happen. And what we talk about is which one outweighs the other one. But those things are typically the normal story for most of us. And it says that, no, that uh, Moses here told of the difficult hardships all along the way, but he also talked about how God had delivered them from Egypt. We should be asking each other, what is the Lord teaching you lately? What are you learning from Scripture reading? Where is your faith being stretched? Where is obedience a challenge for you? What temptation are you dealing with? What are you learning about God? 
What are you celebrating? And those are the conversations that grow your faith. You can start with, how are you doing? Great. And say, okay, as one of my friends always says, he says, he'll ask me, how are you doing? He'll wait for the, for the first answer, and then he'll say, okay, how are you really doing? That's how he begins every conversation I have. I know it's coming. I know the really is going to be in there because he wants to know the true story. Right? That's what we're invited to, to go to those places of authenticity so God can speak to us and through us and into each other's lives. And we have the kind of relationships that actually have profound impact on us, and God uses us that way. And this text shows us where this conversation goes. Verse 9. As a result of the conversation, it says, Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So even though Moses talked about all the hardship, even his life being threatened, at the end of the day, Jethro came out rejoicing. Why? Because they ended up with not the hardship, but the good point of what God was doing. That's where the conversation ended up. Like the celebration we had with people being baptized this morning. Hearing their journey. When you think about this morning, you might say, man, there's some tough stuff this morning in church, but boy, it was so good to hear about those people and their stories of how God transformed their lives forever. That's what I want to take home with me this morning. And I think, you know, I, so I'm a white German background Mennonite. Okay, that's my ethnic and sort of spiritual story where I grew up. This is my emotional range. Some people say it's because I'm German. Others say it's because I'm Mennonite. I'm not sure which one is. Right? If I'm really excited, it goes up. If I'm really mad, it goes there. I used to get my dad, I used to say, you know, oh, my dad's eyebrow went up a quarter inch. He must really be upset. Right? That's, that's my background. I need to hang out with more, you know, Latin Americans or Brazilians or somebody who's more passionate. Get a little more range. I should be hearing some amens from them. <laughs> right? To rejoice, to say, God, what is it that you're doing among us in the midst of the challenges? And then out of that in verse 10, this is how Jethro now responded. First he rejoiced and then he says, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. So first he's rejoicing for the good things, but he recognizes where glory needs to go. It goes not to Moses, not to the people. It goes to God, right? It goes to the Lord. Blessed be the Lord because he's the one who did this. Now, at first read, we read, well, okay, of course it should go to God. That's the appropriate response. But now I want you to think about who it's coming from. Remember I talked about the least likely and most unexpected source of how God works? Jethro is a Midian priest. Uh, the text, uh, some of the texts say he's the priest. So perhaps he was the high priest even, some people speculate. Which means he didn't worship this God. He didn't worship Yahweh. He worshiped the Midian gods. He worshiped different gods. He led people in idol worship. He would have thought, would have had to have thought, that the Midian gods were all powerful. That's why you worship them. You're not going to worship on, by choice a secondary god. And so, but that is the person who is saying, blessed be the Lord who delivered you. Blessed be the Lord who is sovereign. Blessed be the Lord, says the Midian priest 
who delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians. And in verse 11, we have this epiphany, this point of turning for Jethro when he says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, they, the Egyptians, dealt with the people uh, arrogantly, with the people of God arrogantly. Jethro declares suddenly the supremacy of Moses as God, the supremacy of Yahweh. And when he's saying that, greater than all gods, that means he is saying by inference, greater than all Midian gods. Greater than the gods that I led people in worship in and to. He's saying this God is greater than all gods. And this declaration, he says, now I know. Right? It happened in that moment. Now I know. As Jethro submits, submits his life to the one true God. You see, God, stored, God transforms our story as we submit to his story. God transforms our story as we submit to his story. That's where transformation happens. It's in that moment when we go, God, you are sovereign. You are the one true God. You are greater than all gods. You are the one that I worship. You are the one that causes me to rejoice. You are the one that I call blessing to and and want to bless. That's what's happening in Jethro's life here. It's that moment. God transforms our story as we submit to his story. It's not the other way around, friends. Now, Jethro must have heard stories about God from travelers as they, have come, as they had come through the area. And even his grandson, Eliezer, uh, whose, whose name means God is my help, which goes back to Exodus 18, verse 4. It says, the God of my father was, was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So he had context. He had some understanding but he is now confronted by the supremacy of the God of Moses. The one who led the people, who brought them out of the land of their enemies, who took care of their hunger and their thirst. And now the one, Jethro, is the one who took and went to the one, to the one true God. And you think about it. Why do people have gods in that day and age? Or today, for that matter. What is it that we look for? Well, they would have been looking for probably three things at least. One is food, shelter, clothing. They go to to a god for for food, shelter, clothing. The second reason you would go to a god is as a nation, you need children to keep your nation going. So they're going to to their gods for fertility so that they can keep having children to keep their, their, uh, their ethnic group going. The third reason would be physical protection. As you go to war or just physical protection from war, they would be having gods for each of those things. That's why they would go to those gods. Now, it's not ironic that we actually look to God for those same things today, right? We all want food, shelter, clothing. We pray about that. We look for income to provide that. We all want to be safe. And many of us, we want children. And if we have children, we want those children to be safe. So we actually are going to God for the same things. Why did Jethro make this declaration about this now being the one true God? Was it because the worship he enjoyed with Moses was so good or the welcome was so good or the food was so good? No. The reason that Jethro makes this declaration is because he saw and had proof of the care and leading of God 
and the supremacy of God in bringing the people out of Egypt and caring for the people. It was objective proof. God brought them out of bondage. And he knew that his gods could not do what Yahweh did. If you fast forward to today, you think about the trajectory of the biblical story as this is a forerunner for Jesus coming as God keeps pointing things forward to Jesus. Why is it that we as Christ followers today celebrate communion? Why is it that we we remember what God has done through his son Jesus? Is it because we enjoy coming to worship? Is it because we like the music? Is it because we like the building and the company or the cafe? Is it a good deal? Is that why we follow Jesus? No. It's because of the objective, verified truth that God sent his son. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell among all who claim his name. We may enjoy the benefits of these things that we experience as community, but that is not why we proclaim the name of Christ. That is not why we put our faith and hope in him. That is not why we proclaim Jesus to be supreme. It's because of the verifiable, objective truth of what Jesus has done and been declared throughout history. That is why, friends. If that has not been your experience this morning, I would invite you to make that decision. And we have people who would love to pray with you and explain that to you. We have a welcome center just outside the back doors here. There's people there waiting to talk with you and pray with you. You could join one of our alpha groups to say, tell me more about this. Explain this to me. You see, the exodus out of Egypt and the Passover story that we celebrated through communion was a foreshadowing of the great thing that would happen through Jesus Christ in recognition of the supremacy of God and the humble state of humanity and the appropriate response of humanity, which is worship. That is the appropriate response. And in verse 12 of chapter 18, we see Jethro's appropriate response. It says, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came in with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So the Midianite priest is so overwhelmed by the goodness and the sovereignty of God, and he is rejoicing and says, we need to bless and worship God. So he actually initiates a worship service with Aaron and the elders of Israel. From the least expected and least likely source being the Midianite Midianite priest, being the outsider. Like, think about it. This is like someone came here last night, became a Christ follower. They were so moved. They came to us and said, I need to speak to the people and tell them how good God is. And we say, okay, you can come and preach Sunday morning. Lead us in worship. That's what's happening here. Friends, that's that's kind of the storyline here. He's not one of the people who came with them out of Israel. He's not a Hebrew. He's a Midianite. In fact, if anything, you could trace his family line perhaps to Esau, the broken up family. That's who's leading them in worship. And Aaron and the elders join in in this worship feast. And they break bread together, which is some of the most intimate things we can do is eat together as we share our faith together. See, God does not limit who he reveals himself to and through to us. He's not concerned with our ethnicity, our story, our history, or our sin. He desires our salvation, and the story of Christ covers all of that. So how would you respond to 
the outsider, the least likely and the unexpected, like a Jethro. It's interesting to me how open the people of Israel were, the leadership was, as God used the least likely and the least expected. So I grew up in this immigrant home in Winnipeg, and uh, my parents and all their friends were immigrants after World War II, uh, German descent coming out of the Ukraine, and uh, they come to Canada in the 1950s, and then uh, you know, me and my buddies, were, we were all the firstborn in Canada is our generation. And, uh, and so our whole church where I grew up was that kind of church. Uh, lots of German being spoken there. Uh, each service had a sermon in German first and then in English after that. And you sat through both of them. Right? About five minutes of music and hour of preaching in two languages was, kind of, was what we did. And, uh, and then when we, so we'd get together, you know, big family reunion. And my Oma... Uh, my Oma, sort of our matriarch of our family, as uh, you'd go to the family reunion, and now, you know, me and the other grandkids are growing up in Canada. Let's say you bring a, I bring a girlfriend to the family reunion. Oma would look at me, and then she would go like this. It's like, uh-oh, I'm about to be measured. And then I, you know, Oma was about this big, standing tall, right? So I, then I, she'd do this, and I have to bend over. And she would say to me in German, are they one of ours? And that meant, right, are they Christian? Are they Mennonite? Do they speak German? And it had to be all three. And if it wasn't all three, then I got a look that, knew, that I knew I wasn't cutting it. I wasn't matching up to Oma's standard. Right? Are they one of ours? I have to confess, my wife wasn't quite one of ours. She was Mennonite and she was Christian. No German. But they liked her so much, she's in. So that was Okay. In fact, they liked her so much that uh, around my family, my parents quit speaking German when she was there. They spoke English uh, to accommodate my wife. So that tells you how much they liked her. Her parents didn't learn German when I showed up, just by the way. But are they one of ours? When we say, are they one of ours, that's drawing a circle about who we accept. I don't know if you have a, are they one of ours kind of picture in your head. It could be ethnic, it could be how you think, it could be how you dress, it could be tied to employment, it could be tied to social status. One of ours can be defined many different ways. And if our circle of one of ours is too tight, if that circle in, in, in the eyes of Moses and the Jewish leaders was too tight, they would have missed the work and the celebration of Jethro, the Midianite the recent convert, the priest who led them in worship, the least likely and least expected one, who God spoke through. Right? Even Jesus wasn't one of ours for many of the Jewish people because Jesus came, they thought, from Nazareth. They can't, Messiah can't come from Nazareth. No prophet comes from Galilee. He wasn't one of ours. Do you preclude the work of God because someone is not one of ours? that you're not open to the least likely and least expected that God wants to bring his presence to you. You see, God works through our story to reveal his story. While we find our identity in him, he then works through our story to reveal his story. And that's exactly what he did with Jethro the Midianite. 
He is revealing his story and history through Jethro. As Jethro declares the goodness and the beauty of God, the sovereignty of God, worshiping God, and leading the people in that. And then this story takes this interesting twist. It seems disconnected, but I think it's actually very connected. Because in this story now, suddenly it goes from this family story and this conversion story to a management story. So the next day, worship's over. It's Monday, I guess. Time to go. I guess it'd be Sunday in their day. Time to go back to work. And so that's what happens. So in verse 13, it says, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses... When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know, know the statutes of God and his laws. So the full law of God has not been given, given yet. That's coming in future chapters. So what was he doing? Well, we know from chapter 15 and chapter 16 of Exodus that portions of law and instruction had been given uh, to Moses, uh, through Moses to the people. And so we assume that that's what he's teaching the people. That's what he's showing them, and he's settling disputes between them. And, and they're all coming to him. So think about it this way. You know, this is about 600,000 men plus women and children, so it's 1.5, 2 million people which is what? Kind of like the greater Vancouver area, roughly, or close to that. So think about all of your issues, all of your disputes from the river to the ocean here have to go to one person. Say the mayor of Vancouver, you have their number on speed dial, and that's it. That's the one person you can go to for any legal issue you need settled. That's what's happening here. So your phone, it's busy. You know, the the voicemail's full, and it's busy. And, and Moses is completely overwhelmed. So his dad goes on to say in verse 17, it says, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what are you doing? Is, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know uh, the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Then he gives them leadership advice. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure. And all this people uh, will will go to their place in peace. So how did they respond? From the Midianite, the visitor, the least likely and most unexpected person to speak into their judicial system. Verse 24, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. And they judged people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. This fascinates me. Absolutely fascinates me. Like, think about it. So, Saturday night at our service, the visitor becomes a Christian. We say, hey, 
this is so amazing. Why don't you come and preach Sunday morning? So Sunday morning, they come and preach. We go, wow, that was amazing. So Monday night, we have an elders meeting, and we say, why don't you come be a guest at our elders meeting? And at the elders meeting, he said, you know, you guys have a fairly big church. I see how you're organized. I don't think you're organized in very good ways. It's too, over- it's too overwhelming uh, for Pastor Ray and the elders. And so I have a new structure for you that I'm going to suggest. And in that meeting, we all go, that's a great idea. We should do that. And the next Sunday, we announce it. Except now make that for one and a half million people. That's what's happening here. That's how dramatic this is. Like, it's amazing to me. Now, when he says, Moses, this is too much for you. This is too heavy for you. He's not knocking Moses. It's the biblical acknowledgement, really, that Moses is not all-sufficient. No individual is all-sufficient to carry a load. He recognizes the limitations. You're going to wear yourself out, he says in verse 17. I think also what we are learning here is that God tells us throughout Scripture that we're always supposed to work together as God's people, that none of us can carry it alone, that no single leader can carry it alone, no single preacher can carry it alone. In fact, it's unbiblical to elevate a preacher or a leader to that place where we look solely to them to lead us or to teach us. That it's unbiblical for us to do that. I think that's what we're learning here. To trust someone to give us God's word without our own study of scripture, friends, is elevating them to a place they should never be elevated to, and it is actually idolatry. To elevate a leader to the place where they're unquestioned because we're not checking scripture about how they're leading is idolatry. The scripture tells, tells us that we are to work, to check scriptures ourselves, that we are to, to understand the scriptures ourselves. Paul even said that in his own teaching. He said, don't take my word for it. Check the scriptures. That's what the apostle Paul said. Whenever we make a person the hero of a story or the hero of church, the hero of what God is doing, the hero of our faith, it's great to have leaders we look to, but Jesus always needs to be the hero. Jesus is always sovereign over all, and we always need to point to him. If we look to someone else to be our hero, to be the one that we look to to get our cues from, to just get the truth from, to just get leadership from, we are making a mistake, friends, because the word keeps telling us to push, to push us back to the scriptures ourselves. That's what it tells us to do. And now we have the Midianite, the least likely, least expected person who's had this transforming experience with God, led them in worship, who speaks into this situation. Friends, this is the first account we have of a strategic consultant, a management consultant in history, is in scripture here. People have said to me, well, you know, the church shouldn't be about strategy. It shouldn't be about, about management thinking. I go, are you kidding me? That comes from God. He's the one whose idea it was in the first place. Just read Jethro. That's what that is. In fact, this model has been emulated throughout the world. People who don't even know it in governments and military and churches all over the place. Because all truth, friends, comes from God. In fact, I was at a conference a couple of years ago, and Ken Blanchard was at the conference. And Ken uh, was a, uh, a management guru in the, ni- in the um, last century, like in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And he's written over 280 leadership books. He's been a consultant to all kinds of Fortune 500 companies, Fortune 100 companies, very well known. And uh, at this conference I was at, Ken was telling his story because he became a Christ follower later in life. 
And he said, you know, I thought I was pretty good. I knew what I was doing. I've helped a lot of companies. I've sat with a lot of CEOs. I helped them become more productive. I helped them manage better. Like I thought I'd come up with some pretty good stuff. And then I read the Bible. And he said, what I realized in reading the Bible is I never had one new or original leadership thought in my life. Every management thing I ever talked about, every leadership thought I had, I found in Scripture. And he eventually wrote a book of Jesus as leader. Uh, And that's uh, to say that's the best leader we have, the most strategic leader we have. We need to lead like he does. And so Jethro shows us how God speaks into hearts and into lives and how we are always to work in community. And as Moses set that up, they set up the judicial system for all of Israel from that day forward. And Paul speaks to this actually going forward, how we are to work together. So in Ephesians chapter 4, we were given the five different offices in the church. It says he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up. He does not say we gave apostles, pastors, teachers, etc. so that they can be the experts and do the work and everyone else who's in the church can watch. He said, no, basically as pastors at Willingdon, our job is to help you do your job, right? The job of pastors at Willingdon is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's what our job is. If we are not equipping you to do that, whether that's in classes or training or mentoring or in preaching or in some form, if we are not doing that, we are hindering the work of God among us. Because if you are not doing what God has called you to do, as you are filled and led by the Spirit, as God has gifted you, that means the kingdom of God is limited in its impact. Because you are actually not doing what he's called you to do. So our job is to help you do your job. Now God's called us to do specifics in our job, and some of that is teaching or caring or leading or shepherding or whatever it might be. But our job is to help you do your job. That is the role of the body of Christ. That is the role of how we work together. And that's how this text always reminds us that something bigger is going on as God takes the most unexpected and least likely person, the Midianite priest Jethro, and brings him into this story. You think it's for a family reunion, but now he changes how the people actually understand how God works and how they actually are organized. And so when the law comes, they have a system in place by which they can actually train it and teach it and bring it to bear on the people. It's the beauty of how God works in this world. And human leaders throughout history have failed people. Why? Because people are sinful. And Moses didn't get into the promised land because of an act of anger. We also know that people like like, uh, Noah, right? He gets drunk, sleeps naked in his tent, and there's this embarrassing situation. Abram humbles himself to be blessed by Melchizedek, who's not, who's not one of us. He's not inside Abram's family. David is confronted by Nathan the prophet about his adultery. Peter denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows. And the list would go on and on and on to present day. We can be inspired by leaders. Leaders can challenge us and teach us and do all those things. But we always look to Jesus. He is our leader. And if you do not do that, if you place that leader at too high a place, what happens is if that leader happens to fall, your faith falters and you fall because too much stock has been put in a person. Do we honor our leaders? Absolutely. Scripture tells us to do that. But it says don't replace them and put them in the place that only Jesus should be. That is the beauty of what, how God has designed 
this world. And then Jesus, or sorry, the, the author to the Hebrews connects the dots between Jesus and Moses in Hebrews chapter 3. And listen to this. He says, So, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just as a person who built a house deserves more praise than a house itself. For every house has a builder, but the one who built it, who built everything, rather, is God. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. Moses gets honor. His work was an illustration of the truths God would reveal later, that grand story that he's pointing to in history. But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house, and we are God's house, and if we keep our courage and remain, and remain confident in our hope in Christ. Our hope is not in Moses. Our hope is not in each other. Our hope is in Christ, friends. That is the beauty of what God has done and is doing. And throughout history, we have the, the, the present story and the ongoing story that always points us forward to Jesus' work in the world, the coming of Christ, and the conclusion of history when he returns, when there will be no more sorrow and no more pain, and all justice will be made right. The evil one will be vanquished forever. And we will all worship, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess. What? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Praise be to Jesus and God's wonderful story that is unraveling in history and how he keeps inviting us into the story and shows that story to others through us. And often we can be the least likely and the most unexpected as God works through us. So friends, perhaps you're that person for someone else today and perhaps there's someone else that you've actually said, oh, they're not one of ours, but God wants to actually work in your life. So open your eyes, open your heart, and open your mind to the Spirit's leading. And you may have a Jethro moment that is full of celebration and worship. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, I want to thank you for how you reveal yourself in history and how you get into the intricate details like the judicial system in Israel and how you use this least likely and most unexpected person in Jethro who, who claims, proclaims your sovereignty leads the people in worship and then brings his managerial skills to organize them so Moses is not overwhelmed. And so when your law comes, it has a context to be disseminated through the people. And that points forward, Father, to Jesus. And how Jesus is greater than Moses, as wonderful as Moses was, but Jesus is the one who never fails. Jesus is the one to whom we should give all honor and glory and worship as he points us to you, Lord. And I thank you for that. And Father, for anyone here today who doesn't know you, I pray for that Jethro moment where they recognize your sovereignty based on the verified reality of history, both of the history of the people of Israel and the history of Jesus coming to this earth, living a sinless life, dying on the cross for our sins, being raised on the third day to new life and sending a spirit to live and dwell within us. Father, we give our lives to you to follow you. And Father, I pray we would be open, that we wouldn't draw that circle around us, that we wouldn't create a one-of-our scenario, but rather we would be open to the least likely and the most unexpected, perhaps as someone to speak into our lives or someone whose life you want us to speak into as we follow relationships and authenticity. 
so that we can celebrate what you are doing, give glory to you, and walk in the strength and the reality of community that loves and follows you. Be with us as we go into this week, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.